On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Caroline, and Caroline had her boundaries relentlessly worn down by her narcissistic husband. It's a story of caretaking, isolation, guilt trips, sexual coercion, self-gaslighting, and exhaustion. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Caroline. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Caroline is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. On that page, there's lots of instructions. Please read the instructions and then fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And today you are going to hear Caroline's story and a big trigger warning for everyone with this story, Caroline's story. There is lots of talk of sexual coercion throughout the whole entire episode. It's not one isolated incident. And there's a graphic detail. So if this is not for you, please do to turn this episode off now. So with that being said, Caroline, thank you for being here. And the floor is now yours. Thank you so much. Um, So just to start off with telling my story, I'm going to share a little bit about my background. Um, So I am the oldest of several siblings in my family. Um, My youngest brother has a disability. So my parents were pretty stressed out and stretched thin with trying to make sure that he always had the best care and he got his needs met in the school system and his behaviors were managed appropriately, that he was safe and all of that. So I didn't want to put any more stress on my family. Uh, I wanted to really help take care of my siblings, wanted to step in, wanted to be the quote-unquote good girl. So I think that coupled with the family background that both of my parents came from, where boundaries were stepped all over left and right, uh, really just was the perfect cocktail for me becoming a people pleaser who was afraid to upset anyone. And my parents, as far as handling their stress, it it didn't always get handled in very healthy ways. My dad's stress came out as uh, like verbal or emotional abuse towards us. And it seemed like he wanted us to believe that we were all dumb and he was smarter than us. So his his way was always better or the only way to do something or the only way to believe. And so we all became pretty accustomed to like condescending comments, criticism and all of that. That was, that was the norm. I didn't ever see my mom standing up to him. She just kind of like went along with whatever he said. And I could tell sometimes she didn't want to, but I knew that 
anytime anybody mentioned anything about how dad was behaving, people would make excuses for it saying he's just so stressed from, from work or he's so stressed from this thing or that thing. So it became the norm in my family. When it comes to who you are as a person growing up, are you, are you a, a church goer? Yeah, I come from a Christian background. And we went to church pretty much every Sunday. We didn't talk about religion very much, but going to church was definitely a part of my family's routine, for sure. And were you um, very religious yourself personally? Yes. Uh, and what were your beliefs about relationships uh, growing up? And what were your beliefs about man and woman as far as what you're being taught and as far as uh, the roles that you're supposed to have within the family. And then I guess as far as uh, other beliefs that you might have had about the world, mm -hmm. um, uh, what were those? And how are you feeling about yourself as a, as a, a teen? And do you have lots of friends? Are you in friend groups, et cetera? Yeah. So as far as my religious upbringing, um, I was taught that you are supposed to find a spouse, you marry them. And if you're the woman, then you are supposed to submit to what the husband is leading you to do. And um, so you, you don't uh, disagree with that. You, you don't try to dominate him or anything like that. You, you be led by him. Um, that is what women are supposed to do. And then, uh, everyone made it seem like divorce was the biggest sin in the entire world. It's just like this, this union between man and woman was supposed to represent Christ and the church. And you weren't supposed to break that bond. Um, so that was kind of, uh, made to be an outrageous thing to do. And uh, I was going to say, as, as a teen, I, I definitely saw my, my parents' marriage and, you know, they really um, abided by that. And uh, again, I, yeah, I didn't see my mom standing up to anything. I uh, knew that she would just stay in this marriage and, you know, she would, she would do whatever it would take just to, just to keep it going. And as far as your friend group goes, are they all, um, religious as well? Uh, some were, uh, not everyone was, but, um, I would say I had a couple of friends in the church, but other people, uh, were outside of it. Um, but, I didn't have a whole lot of friends in uh, high school or anything like that. So um, definitely not the popular person. So I, I didn't grow up with very high self-esteem. So you have, obviously, you're going to be having a lot of your mom's traits or you would not be um, here today uh, um, and inheriting those. Do you have any traits of your dad's? That's a great question. Um, I, I think that I have his drivenness. I have his perfectionism. But other than that, I don't feel like I identify a whole lot with my dad. I've always identified more with my mom and 
her empathy and her compassion and just like going above and beyond to care for people and almost overextending herself all the time. So you have this um, empathy from your mom. You have a lot of stuff to do with um, caretaking, people pleasing, Mm -hmm. um, you quieting yourself for the family. Um, you know, now you have low self-esteem. You're, you're set up in that way to, to be with someone, but you also get this drivenness from your dad as far as achieving, Mm -hmm. um, and which isn't terrible, but there's a perfectionism that is now thrown into that, which might provide you with a fear of failure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, couple that with just not really seeing many people around me having, you know, failing marriages and things like that. It just, that seemed like probably the worst thing that could happen to me if a relationship failed. Yeah. So we hear some stories where people don't have a specific issue or known issue kind of going in or traumatic kind of stuff. As far as your personality goes, people might have boundaries, but in your case specifically, in all aspects here from family life to religious life, belief systems, and and how you view the world, how you view yourself, every little aspect here um, has really put you in a spot to set you up to be if you're in the wrong hands, ha- have an abuser come in your life and be able to take over. Yes, absolutely. So I, I guess one last question, what are you looking for in a relationship at this point? If you were to find it, like what is the thing that you wanted most? Yes. So the thing that I wanted most was, you know, that uh, I think I wanted to be rescued, if I'm being honest. Wanted to be rescued. What would someone have to do to make you feel seen? Yeah. So they would need to empathize with my family background and my experience, and they would also need to understand. Uh, much of uh, the religious aspect of my life and sharing that as well. So those were two important things that I wanted to be seen on. So eventually you end up meeting the person that this story is about. So take it from there. Yeah. So I decided the summer before I got into my grad program to go on a Christian mission trip. And that is where I met my ex-husband, who this story is about, the narcissist. And I went on this trip without knowing anybody who would be going. So that was exciting, but also terrifying to me uh, because I have a little bit of social anxiety. And I know that when I was was on the trip, I, uh, I was observing him and there were so many things that I felt attracted to. And I, I really admired about him. One was that he was leading us in prayer and he was sharing some really vulnerable things about himself and his faith journey. Um, and so he seemed like a very strong Christian at the time. And that was something I, I really wanted in a husband. Um, 
Yeah, he would share about his trauma and the abuse that his father put put him through um, and just some of his financial worries and talked about how God has provided so much for him through all those things and how God has healed him so much and, and stuff like that. Okay, so you're getting the shared pain of your childhood, someone that understands you in that way. Yeah. Uh, God helped them through, um, and um, that right off the bat there, at a very young age, you're what, at this point, how old? 23. 23 years old, you know, uh, 23 years old, very big impression for you. Yeah, so he he just really drew me in, and I think... uh, he another thing about him is that he would talk a lot about helping the homeless population. So as someone who's very em- empathetic and you know also desires to share compassion with other people, like that was also very attractive to me. And so I thought, man, this much this must be such a great person. <laughs> Um, and I just didn't understand at the time that that could be a facade, a mask. So that was just horrible to, to fall for, but it worked. Um, and so we started bonding over these things and, uh, and then I started sharing a little bit about just like how I was feeling on the trip. You know, I was noticing extreme poverty for the first time. And so, of course, I was moved emotionally by that. Um, I was having a little bit of anxiety about different things. And so he also was there for me about that, too. You know, he would come alongside me and just kind of have some encouraging words. And so I just really felt taken care of by him as well. So um, I felt less alone in those moments. And, And so after the trip, I continued to stay really good friends with them, and we would talk on the phone occasionally, and then somehow that that picked up, and we talked more on the phone. He started sharing more about his trauma and um, some of those worries that I mentioned before. And then, you know, when I was, <laughs> when this was happening, I was in grad school to be a therapist, so I was like, Oh, you know, a chance to really hear someone's story, a chance to really listen. And I genuinely like did want to be there for him as well because he was my friend. But um, I just, I don't know. I I was thinking I should just listen to him. And then uh, eventually he (laughs) asked me on a date very directly, which was something I also was not used to. I was used to like wishy-washy people who didn't really know what they wanted. And so him just kind of saying, I want you and I want to take you on a date. When are you free? Um, I, (laughs) I thought that was so neat. I really, uh, I really appreciated that. And so we went on these dates and I think it was maybe like date number two. He all of a sudden whispered in my ear that he loved me. And that was probably the first red flag that I know of looking back. But I painted it a different color in my mind. <laughs> Maybe it was like a, a yellow flag or something like that. Um, because we were friends for a while. I just kind of thought that was, that was okay maybe in that context. But he was, he was moving things pretty quickly. Um, and 
at the time I was a little taken aback, but I, I definitely just painted that red flag a different color. Um, well, you painted it a different color because he is your specific Prince Charming. He's presenting for you. This is your, you couldn't have picked a better Prince Charming. Mm-hmm. Yep. He was pretty much everything I ever had wanted. Um, and as we were dating, he would take me on these dates that were very specific to my interests. Um, a lot of artsy type things. And he would make these crafts that were very sentimental displays of his love for me. Um, and took me on a mini vacation and uh, did a Bible study about like, what is Christian marriage and what does that mean? And so I thought to myself, man, I, I have a man who just like really wants to take care of me and just really cares about my interests. And, you know, he's just going to make my dreams come true. And I think that the other part of it is that he was talking about sort of being on a mission together to be charitable and compassionate to other people, like volunteering at homeless shelters together, um, you know, really being a paired team and just being these difference makers in the world. So I think that was also part of it is just like trying to make it seem like he's going to have this awesome shared journey with me yeah a lot of the time we hear it's you and me versus the world for you it's it's you and me and we're gonna save the world exactly that's exactly what it was um yeah and it was to the extent that we were talking about having our wedding as a volunteer opportunity or like going on a volunteer honeymoon. Like it, it was, a, it was to an extreme extent. <laughs> what is a volunteer wedding? I don't even know. I think we were planning on giving some food to the homeless. That was like nice, fancy food or something, or we were going to give other people an opportunity to serve and do something kind, whether it was like donations or something instead of wedding gifts. <laughs> so you've met him. He's your Prince Charming. He tells you that he loves you on date number two. So what happens from here? Yeah. So um, from here, it it continues to go seemingly well. Um, he continues some of these love bombing and future faking behaviors um, and eventually wants me to move in with him. Um, and at this point, he's still continuing those behaviors. And he um, was doing that for about four or five months. And then after I moved in with him, he uh, started to send me pictures of engagement rings um, because we were talking about, you know, getting married and, you know, how that would be better to, you know, be married and not have premarital sex and things like that. So um, I was just enchanted by that, or I just thought that was so cool that, you know, somebody wanted to marry me because I had always wanted that. Um, and uh, then once, I moved in, it started to uh, 
that that love bombing behavior started to decrease and he started to do some devaluing type behaviors. Um, so at first it was testing sexual boundaries and also being controlling of how often and under what circumstances I would see my family. And um, I was actually now living five uh, hours north of where my family is. So quite a distance. So it definitely took effort to go see them, but he uh, did not want me seeing them unless it was on his terms. And how did he frame it as why you shouldn't see them? Because he wanted time together or we didn't have it, either I didn't have it in my budget or he didn't have it in his budget. So it's like the financial excuse and also it's so far away. It's so much effort. We really got to plan out when we're going. So that all of those things were part of it. Um, And then as far as like testing sexual boundaries, you know, I... Um, there were certain activities that I didn't want to do or, um, things that kind of weirded me out. And, you know, he would ask me for those things and I would say no. Um, and it, you know, he wouldn't really take no for an answer. And he also would send me messages even while he was at work saying like what he expected from me as far as sexual expectations. So I am to do it this way and you better do it like this and this and this. And, you know, I I told him at the time, like, that's a discussion we have in person. And also I'm getting a little scared, but it didn't matter to him. And somehow when we got back together, like when he got home, he would somehow frame it or gaslight me into thinking like, oh, this isn't that bad. Or, you know, a lot of guys feel like they want these things, you know, or we're having a miscommunication or you're not understanding my intentions. Something like that is usually how it would go. Um, so those were the two main things that I started to see after the love bombing phase uh, went out. So I have two questions, one on each of those. Um, with isolation, besides saying like monetary reasons why not to see your family, is he also isolating them or you from them in other ways as far as putting um, thoughts in your head about them? Yes, absolutely. Um, he He knows my background at this point and he knows certain things that I um, have been hurt by in my family growing up. And so he does express some worry about me being around that too much and kind of starts to talk about certain family members in specific ways that are kind of extreme. But he's, but he's doing it under the guise of concern. Yes, exactly. Concern and caretaking. Yep. Okay. And then when it comes to the sexual coercion in the, in the boundary pushing, He's pushing your boundaries, pushing your boundaries, pushing your boundary. You're, you're holding your boundary. Mm-hmm. Or trying to. Or trying to <laughs> hold your boundary. And 
how long does it take to wear you down and what is your belief or thought process at the point where you do go along with it? Is it just because he's just relentless as far as the continuing ask until eventually you're just tired? Yes, that is exactly how it goes usually. Um, So I feel kind of strong in the beginning when he first starts asking for something and I'll say no, or I'll say, you know, maybe another time. I definitely do not feel like doing that right now, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, he will usually say something and, you know, it goes back and forth a little bit, but it, it's pretty relentless. It's, it's so relentless that it gets to a point where, I start feeling like I want to just grind my teeth from just irritation. And, you know, sometimes it's irritation coupled with just feeling like, like, I just want this to be over and I want to scream, but, you know, it doesn't seem acceptable to do that. So it it felt like I had to cave and I had to cave into things that felt like they were so opposite from my personal values and my own desires just felt like I was just pushed and pushed and pushed and you know whether I would be able to stand up to any given pushing um, at the time really depended on what was going on for me personally that day or you know physically or whatever Um, but it was it was a constant relentless you know do this or you know just like insisting or even um, guilt tripping repeatedly. So the devaluation and sexual coercion boundary pushing has begun in your relationship. And I guess, how does the abuse uh, continue from here? Yeah. So, um, There was continued gaslighting. Um, He was constantly critical of me. And that criticism was something I was so sensitive to. And as I said before, I got criticized a lot in my family. And the way that I made that go away growing up was either I got defensive or I caved and said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I'll fix that or I'll do it differently. And So that's kind of what happened. Um, And eventually I started to develop a ton of confusion about whether I was really behaving as awfully as he was saying, or if I was really that selfish Um, because I fear hurting or upsetting others. And because I value being an understanding and non-judgmental person that that worked really well on me. So how far into, into the relationship are we right here? Right here, we are probably a couple of months into our marriage when this started to be a pattern of him just like constantly criticizing. And how long overall since the day you met him? Yeah, so it would have been four years. Okay, so you're four years in, but this behavior really doesn't start to show itself like big time until you get married. Yes. So you had a solid three and a half years, let's say, of another human being. 
Exactly. Okay, yes. so you have another human being, even though it moved really quickly right off the bat in the sense of the I love yous and everything, you didn't get married until a certain amount of time in. So you're used to a completely different person. So the person you are now getting, giving them the benefit of the doubt or, or confusion going on at this point is really going to be extremely difficult to discern what is what because right now you're only dealing with three months versus three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And which which one are you going to believe? Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely going to believe what I've seen for a longer chunk of time. You know, the, the person that he he was even before this point. And when it comes to the different versions of you, that being um, the wife, that being the religious person, and that being the psychologist or the therapist, mm-hmm. when you're thinking yourself through these things while they're going on, do any of those people... Um, take precedent over the other as far as which hat you have on? Yeah. So I think that the religious person probably wore the biggest hat out of all these identities um, that I hold dear to myself. So, uh, and that religious part of me is thinking, you know, you should choose forgiveness. You should be kind. You shouldn't assume negative things about your spouse. You should communicate well. Um, you should not uh, have squabbling all the time. No, that kind of thing. So um, really, that's that part of me won out pretty much the whole time in my story. And did the therapist ever pop up? At all, as far as questioning things? Yes. So um, there were times where I think when things were especially bad or some particular incident of abuse um, made me feel especially bad, I started to think, this doesn't seem normal. Um, This is not what... I've been told in couples therapy training, this is not um, what I hear other people reporting about their relationships. Like this is, this is something else. There's something going on here and maybe it's him and just this side of him that comes out when he's really stressed with work or something. So that's what I started to think. I was like, Oh, you know, when he's really stressed at work, he starts taking it out on me and he needs a way to de-stress. So, you know, there comes these ways where he just wants to unwind using sex or other means. And so I just kind of framed it that way in my mind. So now you're also being criticized and gaslit. So what's your state of mind And do things change from here? Yeah. So, again, I just kind of continued on being um, very confused. And I, I really just kept wondering, you know, what 
what is really going on and the moments where I um, would talk to him about, you know, like how he was feeling or, you know, why his stress was increasing at different times or why he was pushing for certain things or why our communication was off. Um, he would, he wouldn't really have any clear reason. Um, and I suggested couples therapy, I think a few times throughout the marriage. And usually there was some sort of excuse like, oh, it's kind of stressful to make time for that. I'm so busy with work. Um, or, you know, we would go see a couples therapist and he got really angry about something that was said in the first session and he just didn't want to go back. But I kept wanting that and, you know, kind of begging for it in some ways um, because I wanted something to get better. I thought a lot of it was my fault at the time. Um, especially because of all the gaslighting I went through, you know, he would say like, oh, you're so negative. You are so sensitive. Your, your interpretation of this is off. Um, and meanwhile, I don't have really any supports because of this isolation that I was going through. So I had no one to really talk to about this except for a therapist. And even that he would ask me what I discussed in my sessions with my therapist and ask me, oh, are you going to eventually come to the conclusion that you want to leave me? And, you know, he would cry and I would like have to reassure him, you know, um, no, I love you. Uh, it, even to the point of saying, yeah, I would not divorce you. I mean, that's not something I want to do. And just this constant reassuring of him and wanting to prove so badly I wasn't just quote unquote, like one of those people from his past that hurt him. And I wasn't one of those people that would leave, um, wanted to really be a, a sort of like corrective experience for him. Like I wanted him to experience a very fulfilling, loving, healthy relationship. At this point you have no chance. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he has hooks in you in all directions if that mm -hmm. makes sense it does make it makes sense in my mind like that hook right there where he does the the crying and he takes all of the focus off of the problems that you are having with him putting mm -hmm. it on him uh and his hurt and his and you're coming there to do the caretaking of his situation reassuring him that this isn't what it is that you know so he's able to abuse you do whatever he wants, take your past out on you, use mm -hmm. your past against you, but you are caretaking his victimhood mm -hmm. and he's using his victimhood to control you when you are, you know, getting to these points of questioning what is going on and talking to an outside source about what's going on. And that keeps you in this circular flow of then being more confused about everything and then getting you back into your family cycle pattern of mm -hmm. it must be me. Yes, exactly. Yep. I thought it was all my fault basically. Um, or, you know, at least 70% of my fault or maybe even thought, Oh, because I'm a therapist, I should be able to handle someone who's going through like a trauma response or something like that. Um, and that I can really be there for him and like 
help in his healing journey somehow. Um, and I actually remember one point where my therapist mentioned something to me about, um, I guess it was like a question. And he said to me, do you think that your husband has a personality disorder? And I, you know, I thought about it for a second and I, I actually answered, yeah, I, I do. I do think that. And for a while, we thought it was a different personality disorder that had to do more with um, certain traumas that he has been through. Um, so that made me actually feel more empathy and like <laughs> he just needed healing from his trauma more than anything. Um, so I was just like, how am I going to make someone feel so bad for a struggle that they're going through because of their trauma? And I remember bringing that to him and saying like, hey, I'm really concerned because, um, you know, as you know, I'm a therapist and I noticed this and I, I just pointed out behaviors. I didn't say it's like diagnostic criteria. And I'm just like, you know, I think that that might be something that's important to get help for. What do you think? And then he's like, what do you mean? And then eventually I did say the name of the personality disorder. We thought it was borderline personality disorder. And um, he just got so upset at that point and I heard about it for maybe two weeks straight at a time like he kept bringing it up like how dare you say that how dare you say that about me um you really think you can diagnose your own husband and yada 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 so and then I kind of sat there for a little bit and I'm like man am I just like trying to rationalize too much of this am I trying to like snap a label on somebody, you know, just, you know, when I sh shouldn't be, you know, cause you really shouldn't diagnose family members or, you know, spouses or something, but, you know, I still, I knew something was wrong, but I felt bad for even starting to come to some sort of conclusion that he had a personality disorder. So you're caught in this vicious cycle. And even though you're noticing things are wrong and you are um, talking about them with your therapist, the cycle, I guess, isn't really um, an easy thing to break at this point. You know, you're, you're not at your wit's end yet uh, or your breaking point. So are you feeling like he's starting to change tactics or like maybe he's pulling away? Are there events that start to happen that maybe alter the dynamics of what's going on? So every milestone that I reached with my ex-husband, whether that was starting to date, starting like when we moved in together, when we got married, um, with each milestone, things got progressively worse. He uh, would be more coercive um, sexually and just even with tasks that he expected me to do um, around the house or even just personal things for him. Um, but I think the worst of it came out um, when I started to notice some health issues that I was going through. Um, because I was really tired. I was grieving 
the fact that I thought I was this healthy person, but it turns out I actually have an illness. Um, and then I started to kind of like agonize over, is it possible for me to even have a child? And, you know, then I experienced some like invalidation over, you know, my feelings about that. And then, you know, maybe there was some invalidation, but then other days, you know, he was supportive. Um, so it was a really just mixed bag of things when it came to that part of the story. Um, I, I just, again, I was more confused. I wasn't, no, I, it almost felt like a Jekyll and Hyde type thing. Like I just had no idea what version of him I would get. And it just kind of seemed to go back and forth even more at that point. And then um, when I finally got pregnant, that's when things really changed for the worst. Um, and and uh, I feel that that's when a discarding process began. Um, and as soon as I got pregnant and, you know, the, the pregnancy was progressing in a healthy way, um, he would repeatedly bring up to me about how much agony and despair he was feeling about potentially not getting enough love and attention for me after the future birth of our child. Um, so this would come up constantly. Just be like, oh, you're going to forget about me. You know, we're we're not going to get any, along anymore. We're not going to have sex. This is going to be so awful just over and over. And he would even cry about it and uh, just like, just keep going about it. And I didn't even know what to do with that. I, I tried to comfort, I tried to reassure, I tried to say, you know, why don't you talk to your friends who are fathers and ask them like, for their honest feelings about things? Because I'm sure even though there's stressful parts in a marriage and just in parenthood, there's also some joys too. So I mean, why don't you talk to somebody about that? So I was going to ask you that. Mm-hmm. So it must floor you a little bit that this is his response to having a child mm-hmm. when his first thought is, I'm not going to get any attention from you instead of the thought of, oh my God, I just had a child. I can't wait to give all of my attention and love to this child. Exactly. So yes. were you able to like put two and two together and coherently see that at the time? Or were you so reassuring or trying to reassure his feelings that you didn't even have time to even think these things? Yeah. So I feel it, it was different depending on the day. Honestly, some days I was so consumed by the caretaking and reassuring that I didn't have time or energy to think about, you know, oh, this is not how I would want someone to respond, you know, to learning that they're about to have a child. Um, other days, I, <laughs> I I was just like, this is not normal. Like, I've not, I mean, I've heard of some husbands slash parents going through grief of, like, their old life, you know, when they become parents. So I was partially thinking like, okay, well, some of this is understandable, but this is really uh, extreme to me. So I don't know. I thought I kind of thought both or I kind of experienced both, to be honest. 
so at at this point, um, he is really having you caretake his needs in this situation of what he's going to lose from you. So um, how does this progress or devolve? Yes. So it continues to get worse because I start to experience more pregnancy related symptoms like exhaustion from that. I had horrible morning sickness. So I didn't want to do much of anything. So he was feeling deprived already of me in some ways. Um, So he started to say, I'm feeling so lonely. Like I don't have many connections, you know, and, and you're, you're so sick and, you know, I just feel so depressed and yada, yada, yada. And then he starts to, um, ask me if it's okay if he befriends people online. And I'm thinking to myself, well, he's crying and whining and just so agonized over um, just like this lack of connection that he's feeling. And he's he keeps bringing this to me over and over and over. I'm exhausted from it. I'm exhausted from the pregnancy. And I was working while pregnant, so I was trying to take care of a bunch of clients too. So I was just beat down. And so I just kind of said to him, sure, you know, kind of like whatever floats your boat, you know, as long as you keep it platonic, like just please keep it platonic. And then I didn't think once at the time, like it could be anything else. I was just like, okay, well, um, you know, maybe he's just going to chat with people and maybe I'll fill a void. Where did he say he was going to meet these people online? Yeah, I think he wanted to talk to people on Discord. And I thought because he used Discord to talk to people he played this video game with that maybe it was just video game friends or something. Um, so I just I just thought to myself, well, maybe it's not that much of a big deal as long as I don't see any signs of like something you know, going beyond what's platonic. So, um, but then I actually started to see that he was talking with girls, but I just didn't even want to go there in my mind. I didn't, I mean, I asked him about it maybe once, but just didn't, I just didn't want to think about it. I'm like, I'm about to have a baby and it's something I wanted my whole life. And I didn't (laughs) want to think about the worst case scenario. Um, I have an odd question. Sure. Are you a great mediator or a referee? I would say so. I mean, I'm a couples therapist. So sometimes when uh, couples are kind of going at each other and stuff, I'll referee it. Yeah. Because you are great at seeing the other side of things. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I, I, I can. I don't know. When someone is saying something that maybe seems super awful, I can somehow see something underneath it that makes sense. And so your your, your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. Exactly. Yes. hundred percent. So, yeah. And sometimes I'll look back on these events and I'm just like, dear God, Caroline, like, 
why didn't you see the writing on the wall? Like, but <laughs> you know, that that's my strength becoming a weakness in that moment. It really, really is. You, you're doing a lot of the work. He's made you crazy. But mm-hmm. then your greatest strength starts to become your greatest weakness and starts doing the work. Um, yeah. And starts to, you know, the rationalization of everything or um, seeing the sides of everything of how someone else might be feeling and you putting yourself into someone else's shoes, you being yeah. worn down by them, you know, mm-hmm. it, it then starts to be like, okay, I can just go do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's like this understanding paired with, gosh, I just want this persistent coming at me with all these emotions and desperation and pushing and pushing and pushing. I just want it to stop, like just make it stop. (laughs) So it resulted in caving. So now he's really playing up you loving your child uh, more than him. And he's parlayed that into him branching off to chat with others and who knows what else is happening there really but you've been really worn down here and i guess he's really done his job of confusing you and just really wearing you down so i guess does he try to ramp up things or ask things of you that are more extreme than what's been going on you know you've been um worn down, spun around. So when these things are kind of happening, when you're worn down this much, uh, I guess it's possible that he can get things now out of this relationship um, more than when it started because you're just so exhausted and and your boundary fence here seems to be more susceptible than ever to someone like him who's just really like ramming the the fence in the in the same spot over and over and over until a hole breaks through yeah so he kind of continues to push certain boundaries um he, he at this point he's asked for certain sexual activities that seem pretty extreme to me before but he starts asking for them more and more he's at this point, asking me for a threesome, like pretty much every day, even though I say no, you know, that is not something I want in a marital relationship. Um, he's still bringing it up. And then he's bringing up these fantasies about, um, you know, these threesomes that he wants and all these sexual scenarios that he wants. So um, that's that's been amped up. Um and then he's still bringing up the whole, like, are you still going to love me when the baby's born? Um, you know, and I'm just so sick of it at this point that I, I kind of just said, do you want me to promise to have sex with you a f- certain an- amount of times per week? Is that what this is about? And he said, yeah, that would help. And so at that point, I had, like, made some sort of promise to do this. Even though I know that I'm going to feel exhausted being a new mom, I'm not even a new mom yet, but I know it's exhausting. So um, I'm like thinking, well, I, it's just what I have to do in order to just get him to shut up. Um, so that's 
that's what was going on. And then, um, then, you know, our child was born and he seemed like really happy and just excited about it. And, you know, called, called our child and me, the loves of his life and, um, said just like how beautiful it is to, to see us bonding and all of these things. Um, and that went on for about a week. And then after that, it seemed like all hell broke loose. <laughs> um, so at that point, he amped up the amount of uh, crying and he, he kept saying, well, I'm depressed because I'm not getting enough attention and my stress at work is so much and I can't handle it. And I can't handle losing my wife to a baby and to motherhood and yada, yada, yada. And, um, I was just so heartbroken at the time. Like I just wanted somebody who would be a partner and just step in and be understanding and kind of, you know, be able to acknowledge that he feels these things, but kind of, at least in the beginning, put it aside a little bit more, but he wasn't able to do that. Um, so it that just continued and um i was just so tired of our dynamic and i was the only one getting up with our newborn at night and i was the one that stayed home with her all day um you know it, it and it was just exhausting like i had never felt so exhausted in my entire life just having this person who was just pushing and pushing and would push for me to stay up later than I wanted to, um, to pay attention to him, even though I was just like, I couldn't stay awake even. And I just thought to myself, well, that's really abnormal. I, I feel like you should have empathy and let your wife, who's been up with your newborn several times a night, like let her sleep. Um, so I I started to think more and more about just like something's really wrong here. Like I just don't even know if he has the capacity to empathize with me right now in my experience. Um, so he would even talk too about how it was such a struggle to wait the six week postpartum period where you're not supposed to have sex to avoid infection. And he would even like joke about that to other people, like even people at church, he'd be like, well, you know, can't wait for that to come. And he would like try to ask me to joke about it along with him. And so it was like, it was pretty humiliating actually. And, um, I, I did not want to at that point at the six week point. Um, I actually remember going to the doctor and thinking like, I hope that I get that stamp of approval because otherwise he's going to lose it on me if it's, uh, if I can't do this or it's not medically advised. So that was, that was a huge problem. But then I still had other, um, health issues, uh, something that was not quite normal. And I told him that that was a concern for me and that, you know, I didn't think we should have sex at the time. And, I remember him just, he just kept grilling me about it. And I said, look, I, I just feel really worried. Like, aren't you worried seeing like what's going on here? And he didn't really express any concern. And, and I had told him like, 
hey, I, I think it's really important that my spouse expresses concern about my health as opposed to his own sexual needs, or like at least doesn't prioritize his sexual needs over my health. Um, so I was really thinking to myself that empathy is just lacking so bad here. I just felt so exhausted. It was hard to, um, you know, be a caretaker to our child and seemingly to him as well at the same time. And I just got to a point where I thought to myself, well, if I keep caving to everything he wants and just caretaking him and whatever, I'm going to get so exhausted that I'm going to sink into this horrible depression. Um, and I'm not going to be able to be the best mom to our child. I'm not going to have anything left for our child and, uh, to be the kind of mom, kind of safe, nurturing mom that I wanted to be. And so I have got to start being more assertive. Otherwise I'm not going to make it through this or be the kind of mom that I want to be. Did you come to that conclusion on your own or were you in therapy discussing and talking that through? Yeah, it, I think the help of a therapist really did inspire that thought. But I think I also explicitly remember sitting there thinking through everything and also just thinking like, this has just got to stop. I've got to do something to make this stop. I've got to create a different dynamic. I've got to do something different than what I've been doing before. Otherwise, my spirit is just going to completely break. Are you realizing that they have an arrested development here? Like how old would you say his his ability is? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, when he gets emotionally dysregulated, it seems like a three-year-old or a four-year-old, um, just like pouting, you know, once my way, how dare you, like, just do anything that is other than what I want. I've uh, been a caretaker for for toddlers before, and honestly, toddlers will ask and ask and ask, and it gets just so annoying and so exhausting that sometimes parents are like, okay, whatever the hell you want. I don't care. I just want it to stop. I want to stop being nagged. And that really is what our dynamic reminds me of. So yeah. And, and so I just knew that I had to change something. So I, ha I had to start saying no more often. I had to start saying what I want or what my child needs, um, whether that was my attention or needed a, a quiet environment or something. But I know that when I stood up for those things, like, for example, um, when uh, I said to him that he needed to turn down the TV because our child was trying to sleep very, very close to that, it was like a sin. Um, he would go on and on about, oh, I'm just trying to relax and you're ruining it. And, um, but I was like, we have a child who's trying to get rest and that's important for the child's development and such. And he, he just didn't care. He just, and then he would say that I was being so mean. I was being so, so rude or bitchy or something like that. And I thought to myself, well, 
how could you see me that way? Because I've just, I've never been that way to you. Like, I'm just trying to take care of our child. So that was a problem when I stood up to him for that. Um, And it got to a point where he asked me, while you're home with our baby, when you put the child to sleep, um, I want you to send me one nude or maybe two nudes a day in order to prove that you love me. And I was, again, just too tired. And I mean, it was already so much energy for me to say no so much and then just deal with the backlash, backlash, backlash that I was just like, okay, maybe I shouldn't stand up for myself. And then so I did this thing that supposedly would make him feel loved. Um, and I just felt so degraded by doing that. Like that, I mean, I've done that before in our relationship, but doing that on a daily basis just made me feel so objectified and so used. So I brought that to his attention. And again, it was another argument. And I knew at that point that I was with somebody who just didn't really care how I felt um, and didn't care how much I had been hurt by his behavior over time. Um, and I, I was just really heartbroken and he started to mention like, um, you know, me being a single mother and can you do that? And, oh, you know, when we get divorced, yada, yada, yada. And, and like, so he had talked that way before, but that was, you know, that was increasing as well. And I said, you know, let's go to couples therapy. Let's, let's try to work this out. We have a child together. Um, and then he finally agreed finally. And even when we did go to a couples therapist, I couldn't really speak honestly about things, or I felt, um, that I couldn't say anything that felt like the truth because I thought that the the couples therapist would have a negative view of me, um, from the get go and kind of think that I was being dramatic or I was like, I don't know, some, some kind of, (laughs) um, sensitive, negative person, um, that I was the problem or something. So I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't honest in that first session other than just saying, Hey, couples therapist, I want you to know that I just, I have a hard time bringing things up to him because I'm scared to bring them up is all I said basically about my main concerns about the relationship. She just kind of ended the session by saying, have you ever not to me, to him, have you ever thought about getting on medication? You know, maybe you need to be in therapy, which I actually was really grateful that she made that suggestion, but she didn't really have much to say about, about me making that comment that I felt afraid to bring things up. So after that session, what happens? Yeah. So we continue to argue pretty much on a daily basis and it gets to a point where we're arguing and our child is sleeping in a bassinet next to our bed where we're arguing. And I turn to him and I say, Hey, like child is sleeping. We don't need to have this conversation right here. or We don't need to continue it right now. Let's talk about it somewhere else. 
but no, more pushing, wanting to continue the conversation. And I'm like, that's horrible. I cannot argue this much in front of my newborn child. Like that has got to be bad (laughs) for a developing infant's nervous system and brain and all of that stuff. I, I was just torn to pieces thinking about how that arguing impacted our child. So, um, I would again, bring it to his attention that like, we need to fix things like ASAP because I cannot do this arguing around our child. Like that is not acceptable to me. And, um, in one of the arguments I mentioned to him and I like actually broke down sobbing and crying saying, I've been very hurt by you many, many times throughout a relationship and I never got a sorry. I never was validated about those times, you know, um, like that, that is a problem here. Um, and I feel afraid of you sometimes. And, um, he just gaslit me about it. He said, you just have such an extreme negative view um, cause I also in this conversation told him that I didn't feel in love with them anymore. And I, I understand feeling crushed by hearing that obviously when your spouse says, I, I don't love you anymore, you're heartbroken, but it turned into like anger. It was, it was not like, oh gosh, like maybe I do need to fix something. It's just like, you know, like, how dare you say that? And he kept saying, do you understand how serious that comment is that you made? Do you understand what you said to me? And <laughs> I said, yes, I do. And that's what I feel. <laughs> um, so, and eventually I, I kind of said, well, I said what I said, you know, and I don't just say things like that for no reason. That was very hard for me to tell you because it's the truth. And I'm like, I think we could still, if we go to couples therapy, we can fix this. Um, it'll get better. Uh, so I still tried to hold on to a little bit of hope. Um, but then like one day I came home after, you know, trying to get some self-care in, um, like new mom self-care of like getting my hair cut or something like that. And I come home and our child has a pacifier taped uh with with tape across the child's face and of course i'm gonna have a reaction to that uh i think i raised my tone of voice and i said what the hell is that get that off our child's face right now and he did he listened to me but then he came back at me with are you saying I'm a bad dad? Are you saying I'm a bad dad? And I even then somehow still just like kind of care took even a little bit and kind of said, no, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that's extremely unsafe. And like at that point, I'm like, oh my God, now like something has happened to our child. Like that is beyond a line for me. And Then the whole rest of the day, we were arguing, arguing, arguing. And I was just like, you know what? Either we're going to fix this and, you know, we're going to really, really focus on that and be really intentional, or I am just going to go live with my parents. 
I'm just going to go live with them and, uh, you know, take a break or something like that. And, you know, we just kept arguing. And then eventually I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go, go to our, uh, my parents' house. I'm going to go, uh, stay with them. And then, um, while I was there, I just did a lot of reflecting and thinking a lot about just the history of the relationship and how I was feeling and how I was actually so relieved to be away from him and just felt like, oh, I can actually sit here and have a cup of coffee or I can actually like pay attention to my daughter more and like give her more playtime than I did before. Um, So at this point, so many wheels are turning. I think, you know, I'm like, yeah, there are definitely some narcissistic tendencies here. And, um, you know, he's really lacking in empathy and it's really all about him. And so I had this light bulb moment and my um, support system and support people that I did open up to actually agreed with me. And they were really thankful that I opened up to them and they were like, oh my God. And and they were so heartbroken for me and just everything that I had been through. Um, and, you know, they would, they said, we wish we could have stopped you from marrying this person. And, you know, I think I was on a walk when I was thinking more about it and talking with a family member. And I just stopped in my tracks at one point and just, I said out loud, I need to leave him. I need to leave him now, <laughs> is what I said. And so I knew that if I didn't file for divorce, then I would gaslight myself into going back into the relationship. Um, I would gaslight myself out of making that decision. I would let my religious background make me feel like such a sinner for for doing that. I just had to like gut instinct, like just file. Then from there, I had to move back to his city, I guess our city, um, really the city that he's from to share custody. And this was during COVID. So we were um, going through this social distancing thing. So I had, I had basically no one because of all this isolation that I had endured like during the relationship plus the social distancing. So he was like one of the few people in my bubble, so to speak. So is it because you had residents there previously that you had to move back there? Like that was the law? Yes. That's the law here in the state. So, so it didn't um, matter where, um, where you were with the children or where you wanted to move because this was originally the primary residence of the children or of your child, that that's, that's where it has to be. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah. And it just made it too difficult to share parenting time, um, for me to be living somewhere else, or at least that's what, what he claimed. So I had to, I had to move. So I was back there trying to mother a young child, had no one really in my uh, COVID circle, except for, I guess it would be him because we're exchanging a child and experiencing a lot of um, different tactics to try to get, get me back. So one of those things was feigning ignorance. 
So he would say, I didn't understand how bad it was getting. I don't like, I didn't get that because you never told me, which actually makes no sense because (laughs) I had been telling him, Hey, I don't feel in love with you anymore. I want you to listen to me when I say that there's been a lot of things that have hurt me. And part of the reason I left was because he wasn't attuned to that. He just got angry with me about it. So, um, it just, it baffled me when he feigned ignorance about that and was feigning ignorance to like people that were mutual friends of ours and stuff. And, um, so it could have been slightly a smear campaign in some ways too, of just like, oh, she just didn't tell me. And she just all of a sudden left. Um, or, oh, our communication is so bad. I, that's why I didn't know how bad it was. So there was that going on. And there was also uh, a point where he proclaimed some change. Um, he said he joined a group for um, sex addicts and said, like, how much that's really changing his life, how much he's realizing from that. Um, so I was like, wow, that maybe this is a good thing. You know, he's, he's realizing some of his faults and admitting that he has a problem. And meanwhile, also hoovering a lot, uh, in different ways. So one was like, he knew that it was winter time. It was COVID. Uh, if my car got buried in snow, then who else would help dig me out? So of course he would be like, you want me to come help you, you know? Um, or do you want me to bring food by? Cause he knew at that point, uh, that I had very low income. So I like had some problems with like basic needs. So, you know, he was kind of coming in and trying to play savior in a lot of ways. He's coming in playing savior. He's in a position of power because you are in a bad spot where you are being isolated from everyone having to be back in that town. The sex addiction thing is a built-in excuse for everything where I can hark back now on, it was a sex addiction, you know, and taking away from the fact that abuse actually happened. So he can blame it on an addiction and and then so even in the future, if that was to come up again, it's my addiction. You know, it's not me being abusive. Yes. So he's, he's he's saying it and it taking absolving himself of all responsibility. I'm going to work on my addiction. It's not I'm abusive and I'm sorry. Exactly. A hundred percent. And luckily, I saw that at the time. I noticed how he would talk about the sex addiction, but he wouldn't talk about the abuse. Thankfully, I was able to realize that at the time. Um, But I thought maybe he would still be remorseful about the abuse eventually. Um, Maybe he would start to realize that that was part of the equation too, or I don't know. Um, So I kind of held on to hope for an apology. And then, you know, he would, you know, try to treat my my child and I or our child and I to a meal or something like that every once in a while so like sometimes I was like you know really wanting some company or I did want to eat something nice or whatever so I don't 
even though I knew it wasn't the right thing, I said yes sometimes. And that kind of led to talking a little bit more and like kind of being friends. So when we were kind of friends in that, in that phase, like I was thinking there might be hope for getting back together. I was hoping that I would hear an apology for the abuse. I even think I mentioned to him, you know, this was abuse, this was abuse, this was abuse. And he said nothing about um, how it was, didn't validate that it was abuse, didn't say sorry, um, basically said nothing. He uh, still tried to play savior in some ways. So like, again, we were kind of friends at this point. And then one night he invited me to come stay the night and said, why don't you just bring our child over and just stay the night? And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. And I started to feel nervous and panicked thinking about stepping into that house again. And he kept pushing like he always does. And I thought to myself, oh, this is so familiar and nothing has changed. Like, it's just going to be the same thing. Um, this is, there's no use in even thinking there's hope or entertaining this any further. So I shut it down. He threw a fit about it because he thought he was getting me back or something. I guess I can't read his mind, so I don't really know, but I can only imagine. Um, so he was, you know, kind of throwing some guilt trips back at me and, you know, saying like, you know, I'm doing these nice things for you. You know, our communication has always been bad. Uh, you know, I, I was hoping that you would go to co-parenting therapy with me, you know, all of this stuff. And I just started to go no contact for real, um, with the exception of what we had to communicate about our child. And then from then on, I tried to be no contact except for what I had to do for parenting. So once custody happens and you're now co-parenting while being uh, no contact, you have to do everything through an app. And how are you uh, able to co-parent with him? Does he try to sabotage things? And how is his parenting role as far as when your daughter uh, maybe goes shuffles back and forth here or there, um, how is her behavior, um, and how does the, the whole entire dynamic work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with communication for co-parenting, I try to keep a lot of it via text. I did suggest a co-parenting app, and he directly told me, well, why would I agree to that if it's more admissible in court? Because that is not in my favor. So we had to keep it at text because I can't force him to use this app. Um, So I tried to keep every communication via text because at least that's something um, that is like I can point back to it. Um, But there were many times where he would just call me and he would say, I prefer to talk to you about things this way, even though I would tell him I I prefer to text. I think that keeps us both more accountable if we text. Um, But yet I keep getting these calls and, 
you know, I texted him and said, you know, if it's an emergency, of course, call. Um, if something is dire with our child, then definitely call. Um, but otherwise, you know, let's keep it to text. But it just never really went any type of way that I wanted it to go. It just, it just feels like anything that I try to do, um, he thinks something else will work better or will be the better solution. And it, sometimes it results in arguments and, um, communication continues to be very difficult, very stressful. I think anytime I get a call or text from him, I feel frazzled. So it sounds like PTSD has really become an issue for you. So how are you going about your healing process? Yeah. So my healing process is uh, slow but steady. I'll say that. Um, I I definitely still experience symptoms of PTSD. Uh, I definitely notice feeling triggered at times where I'm talking to clients and it resonates with my story of narcissistic abuse. So um, I, I have to definitely stay in therapy and I have to bring those moments to my therapist. And we need to, we keep talking about, you know, just how to um, get back into this sort of window of tolerance where I'm more emotionally regulated again after being triggered by something. So I have to continuously work on, you know, what I do in response to being triggered. So it's, it's really up and down depending on what's going on with co-parenting. Um, but I'm, I'm doing my best to really dig into things and, uh, it's, it's not been easy, especially as I'm still trying to establish healthy relationships and in healthy spaces up here um, and actually rebuild my life. Uh, so it's a lot of trying to heal coupled with trying to rebuild my life. It's It's been a ton of work. <laughs> so now that you've been going through your healing process and understanding everything that you went through, uh, what is, I guess, the biggest pieces of wisdom or advice that you have for everyone listening? Yeah. So I think the most important piece of advice that I have is that if you have any bit of suspicion that someone in your life, at least people that you're close to, um, if you think that they have narcissistic tendencies, if you think they are um, experiencing symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder, start seeing a therapist um, and preferably one that's trauma informed and one that knows about narcissistic abuse. You need someone who's competent. Um, I know that can feel hard to come by, especially in certain places. But I think it's it's such a key tool because gaslighting can just be like this wave that knocks you out and makes you spin underwater that in a way that you don't even know which way is up or down anymore. And you need somebody in your corner to tell you what way is up or down um, and to tell you, hey, 
I'm concerned about this or, hey, this uh, this is a sign of a pathological relationship um, or something like that. So that at least you have some voice telling you, again, which way is up or down or telling you something that makes you uh, not fall as prey to the gaslighting. Uh, it's understandable if you do, obviously, but you need someone's voice to be part of what you're thinking in those moments when gaslighting is going on and someone to kind of bring you out of the dark. Well, Caroline, I really want to thank you for being here with us today. You did a great job of telling your story. It's not easy to tell your story, and you were very clear and concise for everyone to learn from, and you validated so many people's experiences, and you did it, and it wasn't easy because there are some things that we uh, didn't mention today because they were just too painful to to get to, and you know, everyone who's who's listening to this, there was... Uh, some more stuff that had to do with uh, degrading sexual acts, but we just weren't able to, you know, be able to discuss it. So sometimes it's not always safe to discuss these things or go deeper if you're not uh, ready to, because it could be re-traumatizing. So everyone just remember that when you're telling your story that it is possibly re to re-traumatize yourself by by doing this. So pre be careful and, you know, when you do it, be in the hands of uh, a really good trained professional trauma-informed specialist. So I really just want to thank you um, once again, Caroline, for being our guest today. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And... If you want to be a guest like Caroline was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. And when you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page where there's all of these instructions. Please read them all and either send, them, send us an email at 2, I'm flubbing over my words, send an email to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or just fill out our guest form page, press the submit button, and we'll go from there. And also at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have our very own support group. We have our very own safe social network. So click the support group button at the top of the page. Inside, you'll find that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon, and Saturday night. We have our very own forum boards for people to post and for others to answer. We're all there. All our support group members will be there to answer your questions. And we have episodes that ne never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes on there as well. So if you need extra support, please join our support group. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. They have phone numbers and websites for all of the shelters and domestic violence agencies in America and Canada. So if you need more support, please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org today. And that is it for our show today. A big thank you once again to Caroline for being our guest. And that is it. From Caroline and myself, we hope you have a good night.